So I'd like you to make Rob Smith uh, feel very welcome. Like, round of applause. So I just want to um, share a little bit about Rob, um, because uh, believe it or not, I've known Rob uh, since the, well, my, Nikki's known Rob, I'd say, since the early 1990s, my wife Nikki. I've known Rob since the late 1990s when um, he was our pastor at Christchurch Anglican Church in St. Ives. Um, and uh, way back from, from those days when I was a, a late teenager, uh, Rob earned my respect and my deep respect um, in, in so many ways. Um, as, a, as a preacher, I still remember Rob's, he wouldn't have no idea of this, but, but Rob's um, series uh, through, I remember Philippians as, actually is a really striking one, 1999, that was okay. a great series. Um, but Rob is, uh, um, is, is one of those guys who's uh, so humble, you, it actually, you don't realize how many things he's doing at once, and I was just talking to him before, just to, just to check off the, 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 the number of hats he wears. So he's a minister at St. Andrew's Cathedral Anglican Church at the moment. Uh, he's also part of the ministry training program. Is that what it's called? Ministry training and development. Training and development program, um, which for the for the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, which um, whose whose chief task is to identify uh, and and nurture new leaders for churches. Um, he's also a lecturer at Sydney Missionary and Bible College, so he's a scholar, preacher, and that's something that's um, personally always um, earned Rob, uh, my respect um, for Rob uh, is that he's. Uh, a great example of um, a, a sharp mind in service of the Lord with a great deal of humility. And, um, yeah, I look up to you in that way, Rob, um, very much so. You probably don't realize, um, but I do sincerely believe that. On top of all of that, Rob is um, a prolific and virtuosic musician. And I'm, I don't use those terms lightly. Um, he is prolific. If you actually d- go through his discography, it's extensive. Um, and he is virtuosic in that he can record whole albums just playing every single instrument himself. And there are many songs we've, you've probably sung in your um, life in churches that actually might have um, been penned by Rob and his colleagues and currently work a lot with emu music, as I understand. Sure, yeah. Um, and again, training um, young music, Christian musicians and worship leaders. Um, that all being said, the greatest pleasure in having Rob is that he's um, becoming and, and has become, I think, a, a great friend of Dave's and of this church. Uh, he's visited several times with his wife, Claire, who's able to be here today, travelling as well. Um, but it is a real delight to me personally because of Rob's um, uh, place in, in my history and Nikki's history, being a pastor, and also to Julie Pasolich as well, uh, and perhaps others here. Um, but it's, it's a real privilege, and I think it's, it's exactly the kind of relationship um, we've been praying for. Um, it's a great encouragement to Dave. I know how much Dave... Uh, comes back glowing after talking to you, and, and just the deep encouragement um, from, from leader to leader. Um, so it's a great delight to have Rob here, and as I said, he's going to be kicking off our summer series, which we're sort of doing a little foretaste early by preaching on Psalm 31. And before he does that, um, we actually asked Joel to read the passage. We don't often necessarily have formal Bible reading times, often um, we'll read it during the sermon, but we're going to have Joel read the passage from which Rob is going to preach today. Psalm 31. So I'll let Joel do that and then hand over to you, Rob. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. A reading from Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me and a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. 
Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbours, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness for which you have stored up for those Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Well, friends, let's, let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> we thank you that your word is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray now as we give our attention to you, that the words of my lips and the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable to you, our Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Mike, thank you for welcoming me and friends, it's really is lovely to be back with you here. I think this is, I think this is my fifth visit. Uh, to you, uh, Sovereign Grace Church here. Uh, Dave and I actually got to ha- hang out in Orlando back in April at the Gospel Coalition Conference. Uh, and so I'm jealous he's back there again and conferencing all over again. He left me behind. But anyway, uh, I'm glad to be here uh, to help and serve you. Now, we're looking at the book of Psalms this morning and uh, Psalm 31 in particular. I do encourage you to have, uh, have that open or on your phone or whatever uh, means you use to encounter the Word of God. But uh, as we turn to the Psalms, we are looking at a part of the Bible which John Calvin once described as mirrors of the soul, that the book of Psalms is like a collection of mirrors that show us something about our souls, about ourselves. They reflect back to us aspects of our humanness 
They tell us stories about our weakness, our sinfulness, our helplessness, our neediness. So they're a very great gift, the book of Psalms. They teach us deep truths about things that sometimes we don't readily want to see and hear. But not only are the Psalms mirrors, they're also windows. They not only reflect things back to us, but they show us things. Particularly, they show us things about God. They teach us truths about his greatness and his grace, his mercy and his power. And of course, if you put those two things together, the mirror and the window, you realize that we actually need both. And of course, in our experience of growing as God's children, uh, the two work very closely together because it's only as we see ourselves truly, learn truths about ourselves, that we also see God truly. So as we see our souls for what they are, we see God for who and what he is. And it's as those two things come together that we are taught to cry out to him. Now, this is one of the great messages of this psalm, one of the points I really want to drive home this morning. We need to learn to cry out to God, and we do when we see ourselves and see him. Because in that sort of combination, we're taught to trust, don't we? We're taught to hope, we're taught to rejoice, we're taught to praise. And again, these are some of the things the book of Psalms seeks to do for us, to train us up to be people of faith, people of hope, people of rejoicing, people of praise. And so the book of Psalms really does, it pushes us. I don't know if you're a reader of the Psalms, I trust you will become so if you haven't yet become one. Because the Psalms, they prod us, they nudge us, and sometimes they kick us pushing us sort of outside of our, our natural comfort zones because we all have sort of places where we're comfortable. But God's in the business of, of stretching us, right? making us grow. The Psalms push us to get real, to be authentic, right? to be real with ourselves, to be real with others, to be real above all else with God. Have a look on the screen. Uh, I've given you a little quote here up there by a man named Walter Brueggemann. Uh, who in reflecting on this sort of feature of the book of Psalms says we, we are always hurrying to catch up with the daring faith of the Psalter. Right? It's ahead of us on the road and we've got to keep uh, trying to keep pace with it and, uh, and grow to that place where the Psalms wish to take us and to lead us. So there's an openness here. There's a, a confidence here that you and I need to learn and learn to imitate in this great book of Psalms. Now, we're looking at just one this morning, you'll be glad, not 150 of them, uh, just Psalm 31, but that's, uh, there's enough to Psalm 31 to keep us going for a little while here this morning. Now what's Psalm 31 all about? It's a psalm about waiting, waiting, right? waiting for the Lord, waiting for his answer, waiting for his intervention, waiting for his deliverance. Now I don't know about you, but waiting is nearly always difficult, isn't it? Frustrating, testing, right? It tests our patience as we're forced to wait. It can, in fact, increase our pain as we're forced to wait. Not only because our problems can sometimes get worse while we're waiting, but just the very fact of carrying a burden gets heavier over time. And so as we wait, we become weary, don't we? Weary with waiting. And our burdens just seem to sort of increase in weight over time. So waiting is not a simple thing. Not an easy thing. 
But here's where Psalm 31, I think, is perfectly designed by the Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us that we might learn to be people who wait, people who rest, people who trust. All right, let's have a look at the psalm together. Have a look at the opening verses, the way it begins. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now, unlike many of the Psalms, we're not given any sort of details here about the circumstances behind this one. What gave rise to it? Uh, It's clear that uh, King David, who is the author of it, is in distress. But again, we don't know what has brought that distress about. But it's in his distress that he turns to the living God and turns to prayer. And it's a very rich prayer, uh, prayer, very real prayer. This is not the prayer of the agnostic who sort of says, you know, God, if you're there, maybe perhaps you could help me out. I haven't asked much of you in the past, so perhaps you could do me this sort of favor. No, that's not his spirit at all. Now, this is the prayer of one who knows God, right? who knows the character of God, who knows the promises of God, who knows the reality that God hears the cries of his children, that he cares for his people. Now, this is the prayer of one who knows that God is willing and able to help. So it's a cry of faith, a prayer of faith. Now, as I'm sure you're aware and perhaps can even testify, sometimes, sometimes when we feel trapped and despairing, either perhaps because of sickness or sinfulness or some other circumstance in life that has sort of overwhelmed us, we can get very angry with God, can't we? We can, in fact, lash out at him, blame him, accuse him, complain for the state we are in. None of that here in David's prayer. There's no bitterness, no whinging. Desperation, sure, but confidence also. Desperation born of distress, but confidence born of a very well-grounded trust in God. And his trust is indeed very well-grounded. He makes very clear why he trusts in the Lord. You see verse 1, deliver me in your Righteousness, he says. Or in verse 3, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. So he is here appealing to what you might call the integrity of God. To the fact that God has promised to deliver his children from evil. He has committed himself, bound himself to save his people. That's why David can cry the way he does with confidence before the Lord. Now, as we go on into the psalm, verses 5 to 8, you see how this sort of confidence develops in his words. Look at verse 5. We'll, we'll see why this verse is so important as we go on. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Just pause it there for a moment. We'll see in a little while that verse 5 is the very verse that Jesus takes on his lips as he's about to surrender up his life on the cross. But again, I hope you can see this is no statement of resignation. 
This is no giving up. It's not like the bumper sticker that I saw a little while ago that said, I feel so much better now that I've given up all hope. That's not what's going on here. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, this, this is a statement of rest, of peace, born, as we've seen, of trust in the Lord and his great promise. And the Lord, of course, is worthy of our trust. He's the only one worthy of our trust. And that's why I think David says here in verse 6, you might wonder what the connection is. He says, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. Now, why does his mind jump there? Well, because idols, of course, are false gods. They can't help. They can do nothing for you. They're the gods of human imagination, but they have no power. And so idolatry is an exercise in stupidity as well as an exercise in futility. It accomplishes nothing. In fact, those who worship idols, says Scripture, become like them. Right? Deaf, dumb, blind, stupid. No, the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone can save. The Lord alone, therefore, is worthy of trust. And it's that trust that gives rise to to David's hope. See, so strong is his confidence that God will redeem him that in verses 7 and 8, it's it's almost as if he can sort of project himself into the future, project himself onto the other side of his rescue. See, look at what he says, verse 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet instead in a broad place. Now that's hope, isn't it? He can almost taste it. It's not yet his experience, as we'll see. But he can almost taste what is coming because he knows that God is faithful. And it's that confidence in the faithfulness of God that enables him to cope in the present because his troubles haven't yet gone away. But he's in a place now where he can bear them because he knows there is an end to them. He knows that God has committed himself to redeem his children from evil, to rescue us from our enemies. So here's the key to what uh, the New Testament calls rejoicing in our sufferings. And it's, it really is a key that we need to learn and grasp again and again in the Christian life. We are called to rejoice in suffering, not because we're meant to enjoy suffering. God is not calling us to masochism. But he's calling us to hope. See, we rejoice in suffering not only because God has promised to deliver us from it, which he has, but because he has purposed to work through it for our good. See, suffering drives us to trust. It drives us to hope as we wait for the Lord. Right? Somebody said that uh, suffering actually sort of, it, it kind of builds the muscles of hope. Right? It exercises the muscles of hope. And we had these words of Paul read to us uh, earlier. I wanted to actually to read them together off the screen. Will you do that with me? The apostle says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. So there's the golden chain of Romans 5. There's a golden chain in Romans 8. That's another story. But here it is. Right? That suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. Now, none of this, as I said a moment ago, it means that our, our present pain just disappears as if somehow we can then sort of float above it. No, no. We have to learn to live the life of faith in the midst of distress. And so the life of faith, real faith, involves, inevitably involves a kind of seesawing between tranquility on the one side and anxiety on the other. There is a seesaw that we are on and sometimes it leans this way, sometimes it leans that way. Uh, but that's just the reality. It's biblical reality. Right? All the great heroes of faith ride this seesaw. Right? We swing, as a friend of mine says, between brightness and brokenness. Don't we? Between brightness and brokenness. Now, when we move on this psalm, verses 9 to 13, we see that uh, here David's down the sort of the, well, the, the darker end of the seesaw. And again, expressing his anguish, but doing so with refreshing honesty, he says in verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now here we do learn a little more, perhaps, about what's going on for David. His distress stems from two distinct sources. On the one hand, he speaks of his iniquity there in verse 10, doesn't he? That is his guilt. Right? He has evidently sinned in some way. He doesn't, again, give us the details of that sin, but he has sinned. And his sin is causing him turmoil. It's causing him grief. It's causing him sorrow. In fact, it's impacting his body. But he says his strength is sapped. His bones feel like they're wasting away. Now, you only have to read on into the next psalm to hear an even a more detailed account of that kind of experience. Right? That's the impact of sin upon us. It crushes us. It cripples us. But that's not the only cause of distress for David. He's also got, on the other hand, his enemies, verse 11. Right? People who actually want to kill him. Who want to take his life away. And to make matters worse, he doesn't just have enemies, but he says he's become a source of contempt to his neighbors. And worse still, he's been cast off by his friends. Right? He is a man utterly alone. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I can tell you, as one who has, that it's a profoundly disturbing thing to discover that you have enemies. That there are people who actually don't like you, wish you ill, want to do you harm, want to see you destroyed. Now, we can have enemies for any number of reasons. Sometimes it's, it's a result of a misunderstanding. 
or perhaps for some reason they fear you, or maybe they're just jealous of you, or maybe you actually did them a wrong. Your own sin and folly has created this opposition. May, of course, just be one of the costs of following Jesus. If we follow the Lord, we will have enemies. They hated the master, they're going to hate the servants. They persecuted him, they'll persecute us. But whether or not you are aware of human enemies, the fact of the matter is that all of us, as God's children, the fathers of Christ, have spiritual enemies, don't we? How does the Apostle Paul describe them? Have a look on the screen. He calls them the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right? We have supernatural enemies, spiritual enemies who are scheming against us, seeking to do us harm. They want to damage you. They want to undo you. We need to be aware. We need to be alert. We need to be armored up, don't we, for spiritual warfare. And that's why we need to pray, and we need each other's prayer. We need each other's help. We need each other's care. But David, of course, doesn't have any of that. He's alone. It's a great uh, tragedy when Christians, as some people have put it, shoot their own wounded. It happens. I don't know how many of you know the story of uh, Horatio Spafford. He's the guy who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. In fact, we're going to sing it in a little while. That marvelous hymn was written uh, after, uh, well, uh, I'll leave you to discover the story for yourself, but a, a whole series of devastating family tragedies. He lost five children and uh, lost a you know, whole lot of money and uh, all kinds of things. Um, that was terrible enough. But what I only learned recently is that after the Spaffords suffered so much loss, so much tragedy, the church rejected them. Because for some bizarre reason, their church came to the view that these were divine punishments upon them. So instead of caring for them, instead of nurturing them, instead of surrounding them with love, they ostracized them. They looked upon them with suspicion. Appalling. But it happens. Not happening here, praise God. Not in this church, may it never be so. But here's the thing, friends. Even when we abandon each other, and we sometimes do, sometimes can, God does not abandon us. David is alone, but not completely alone. He has the Lord on his side. Look at verse 14. He turns to the Lord, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. 
In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in the shelter, in your shelter from the strife of tongues. David here is confident, supremely confident that God is going to do what he's promised to do. He's going to intervene, he's going to protect his children, what he calls there the plots of men. And Christian history is, is littered with uh, examples as well, of course, as biblical history is full of instances where God has intervened and rescued his children and done so quite dramatically. I was, in fact, I was talking to a man about a year ago now, um, and uh, he just said to me in passing, he said, I owe my existence to Psalm 31. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, well, you better explain what you mean by that. And uh, he said, well, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother... Uh, was a French Huguenot. Now, the Huguenots were French Protestants who were persecuted by the Catholics back in the 16th century. And so they were driven out of France and they went to the Americas to try and, I guess, find freedom and peace and make a life there. Now, anyway, his great-great-great-great-grandmother was traveling with her sister from one settlement to another and they were captured by Indians. And the Indians tied them up and were going to burn them alive. And uh, as the Indians were making the fire around them, these two women began to sing Psalm 31. Uh, There's a very famous version of the Psalter called the Huguenot Psalter, which uh, uh, obviously these French Protestants had learned. And so there they were singing these very words. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. And so they sang, and the Indians were so fascinated, they stopped making the fire, and they all sat down. To listen. So guess what? They kept singing. I don't know how many encores they did. um, But they kept singing long enough for the rescue party to find them and save them. And hence the comment of this man, I owe my existence to Psalm 31. Now there's there's an illustration, an example of God's deliverance in this world. His intervention to foil the plots of men, how abundant indeed is his goodness which he has stored up for those who fear him and work for those who take refuge in him. But God is good, God is merciful, committed to delivering his children from evil. But here's the thing. He hasn't always promised to do it in this life. Sometimes he saves his children from death Other times he saves his children through death. There are any number of servants of Christ who have been burnt alive, who have been put to death in any number of horrific ways. And of course, we don't have to just go to Christian history to see it, do we? It's all there in Scripture. Just ask the apostles. Just ask the Lord himself the man of sorrows, despised and rejected, crucified, put to death. We follow a master who was saved not from death, but through death, taken through and resurrected on the other side. And so here's the thing. Many times God's children have had to suffer afflictions that have cut short their days or bear with the stress that they've carried for the remainder of their time on earth. God has promised to deliver, but whether he delivers in this age 
or whether that deliverance will wait for the age to come. That is in his hands. Our times are in his hands. One thing is absolutely sure. On that day when Jesus comes again, when all things are put right, God will fully, finally, freely and forever deliver us from every form of evil that could ever afflict and assail us. There'll be no more death, no more tears, no more sighing, no more sorrow, no more suffering. No wonder the Apostle Paul could write these words that we know from 2 Corinthians 4.17. Our light and momentary troubles, he says, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. There's perspective for you, isn't it? Perspective on the distresses of this life, which are real, which are painful, but, but in comparison to that which is to come, they are but light and momentary troubles. Well, this beautiful verse from the previous psalm, Psalm 30, which we sang in one of our songs earlier, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And it will come. The morning will dawn. The promise is sure. God has committed himself to deliver his children. Now, the flip side, of course, is what he will do for his enemies for those who refuse to be reconciled to him. They will indeed be put to shame, says the psalm. They will indeed go silently to Sheol. Whereas Psalm 1 puts it very starkly, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The enemies of God cannot win. God is stronger. In the world to come, his will will be done on this earth. As it is now being done in heaven, it will. And therefore evil and all those who have aligned themselves to the cause of evil will be banished from his kingdom. That's the other side of the promise. Deliverance for the righteous. Rejection for the wicked. Now for King David, there was, as for those two Huguenot women that we heard about, there was deliverance in this age. There was a this-worldly resolution from his distress. And of course, that's often our case, isn't it? I mean, the fact is, we wouldn't be here this morning if God hadn't delivered us from, uh, us from any number of things, any number of sicknesses, any number of near accidents, any number of... Right? God is the God who answers prayer, who constantly intervenes, who rescues day by day. And so out here for David, yes, he has been spared. And so in verse 21, on the other side of his deliverance, well, what does he do? He praises, right? He just explodes into sort of unrestrained thanksgiving, right? Into jubilation and praise. Look at verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but not so. You heard the voice of my plea for mercy when I cried to you for help. And here's the reason why God deserves our praise, brothers and sisters. It's because he hears our cry. He listens to his children's longings. 
right? His ear is attentive to our needs. And that's why we need to learn to cry. To get real with him when we are in a place of darkness and despair and distress. He is not the God who helps those who help themselves, right? He's the God who helps those who cannot help themselves. That's us. He is the deliverer. And so, as I said to you earlier, this is one of the great take-home lessons of Psalm 31. Learn to cry out to the Lord. Just open up. He already knows. You're not telling him anything he doesn't know. But you need to bring your needs to him, cast your anxieties upon him. You're probably aware that the word mayday is that international sort of distress call. Right? It comes from a, well, a, a strange pronunciation of a French, French word that basically means help me. Help me. Come to my rescue. We are the people who need to learn to cry out mayday to the Lord. It may be humbling for us, but it is good for us. We need to grow in that ability just to fall to our knees, to cry out to him for help. Psalm 31 shows us the way, doesn't it? And gives us words to pray. It's one of the great gifts of the Psalms. We have divinely inspired words that we can make our words in prayer to God, praise to God. It's hard to find better prayers than that. We learn to pray the Psalms, just as those two women learned to sing Psalm 31 and found it to be true in their moment of need. Now, before we come to the last couple of verses of the Psalm, I want to ask an important question. The question is, who is this psalm about? Who is this psalm about? Now, of course, it's about David. I mean, David wrote it. And it's clearly reflective of his experience in some ways. And as we've seen, it's not that difficult to sort of extend it to ourselves. That David's written it not only about himself or for himself, but he's written it because this is common experience, Christian experience. We can see ourselves in the psalm easily and readily. But do you think it's possible that, just maybe, this psalm is ultimately, fundamentally, about someone else? Someone who, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. You see, I've left the word out there in the middle. I hope you guess what it is. <laughs> it's the name Jesus. This is Jesus who offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reverent submission. See, the answer to my question, who are the psalm about, is actually fairly straightforward. It is ultimately about Jesus because all of the psalms are about him. They all point to him. Somebody's described the psalms, uh, individual psalms, a bit like Cinderella's slipper. And they only, in the end, fit on one foot. (laughs) That of the Lord Jesus himself. 
And so it's not at all surprising, is it, that he should take the words of verse 5 of this psalm onto his lips at the very moment of death. And as we're told in the Synoptic Gospels, cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not a cry of resignation as we've seen. A cry of confidence. Psalm 31 is Jesus' psalm, all right. And it belongs to him who suffered like no other. Not, of course, for his own sins, but for our sins. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. He cried out in his alarm, I am cut off from your sight, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And yet again, it was for our sake that he suffered. But he was heard. He was heard by him who is able to save from death. But of course, he was not spared the experience of death, but taken through death. And in so doing, destroyed the power of death. Lovely hymn of, uh, well, it's a hymn of a German pietist, John Wesley translated. It says, Death, uh, he plunged in his imperial strength to depths of darkness down. He brought the trophy up at length, the foiled usurper's crown. It was one of our other hymns, says, Death no longer keeps its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. He did it. Saved through death into resurrection life. Psalm 31 is Jesus' psalm, but of course it's our psalm too because those of us who are in Jesus receive from Jesus all that is his. He's the great sharer. He shares all things with his people. shares his sufferings will share his glory. We are fellow heirs with him. We will reign with him. This is our psalm too. In him, all of us who trust in Christ need to learn to trust like Christ and to make Psalm 31 our own. This is what it means to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, to walk this path, right? to learn to bear the reproach he bore and to pray to God in the midst of our distress knowing that he hears us, knowing that he will deliver us. Make Psalm 31 your psalm. Now that brings us, as I said, to the final two verses. Because here, very wonderfully, David's given us a a, a twofold take-home exhortation. So if you're sort of wondering, where's all this coming into land? What's, What's the cash value, as people say? Well, here it is, verse 23 and verse 24. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And then secondly, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Here's the twofold take-home exhortation to love the Lord. Love him. 
It's a wonderful command, isn't it? To be told to love. It's like when my wife says to me, give me a hug. That's a great command. I like that command. I willingly obey. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Now if David, with all he knew of the Lord, could give this exhortation to us, how much more we who know even more of the love of the Lord than he did. We know what the Lord in his love has done for us, sending his only son to die in our place. How much more should we love the Lord? He preserves the faithful. But note, abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. But on the other hand here, be strong, says verse 24. Love the Lord, but be strong. Let your heart take courage. Now here's the thing. I, I, I had no knowledge of what's been going on in your church life until I walked in this morning, but clearly uh, you know, there have been afflictions and there is distress and there is grief and there is pain and there is hurt. And it's very easy to lose heart. It's very easy to despair. Right? The complications of life can be in, at times almost intolerable. And yet here the word of God says... Be strong. Be strong. Now that's not a command to just sort of somehow be oblivious or to shut yourself off from pain. It's a call to stand up in the midst of it. Because you know him who is God. Your times are in his hands. He will deliver you. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. He hears your cry. He will come to your aid. He will sustain you in your distress. And he will, in his time, in his way, deliver you from all your troubles. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.